Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. In these next two podcasts, Jacinta and I will focus on Department of Justice FCA investigations and common mistakes that targets make in defending these investigations. Our guest today is Michael Shaheen. Michael is a partner in the White Collar and Regulatory Enforcement and Healthcare Groups in our D.C. office, and he focuses on federal litigation, investigations, and enforcement actions. Michael has significant experience with the False Claims Act and with a particular emphasis on healthcare fraud. Before joining Kroll & Mooring, Michael served as a trial attorney with the fraud section of the Department of Justice, where his work primarily involved investigating and prosecuting FCA matters. So welcome, Michael, and thanks for joining us today to bring us your perspective as a former DOJ trial attorney investigating and prosecuting FCA matters. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Welcome, Michael. Just to reiterate, Ma's greetings, and just we're super excited to have you as part of the team here. Digging in, as our listeners are aware, the government touts the FCA as a primary and an incredibly powerful weapon to combat suspected corporate fraud against the U.S. government. The risk of FCA liability itself, such as treble damages as well as other damage amounts, and a lot of its collateral consequences if you're ultimately found liable, things like corporate integrity agreements and the sometimes hard to quantify reputational damage, these incentives undoubtedly give the government the upper hand in investigations and negotiations pertaining to FCA matters. The incentives here are for a potential target, whether it's a DOJ-led investigation or whether it's a KETAM investigation, to try as much as possible to either have the government not intervene or even better file a C2A motion if it's a relator complaint or otherwise minimize the potential inquiry that the department is currently looking into. But in any event, I want to start here with one of the tools as part of the FCA that the government has and any advice you have with respect to that. And what I'm talking about here is civil investigative demands, or CIDs. These CIDs allow the U.S. government to make pre-litigation requests for records and information in connection with the federal FCA investigation while the target of that investigation has no right to make any sort of reciprocal request, any sort of, for example, like a discovery request. A CID can be issued prior to the commencement of formal civil proceedings under the FCA or prior to the government's decision to intervene in a KETAM case. It's particularly powerful because it has incredible breadth. It can compel the production of documents or interrogatory responses, sworn oral testimony related to the documents or information requested, or any combination of these requests. Once litigation is underway, the government must rely on traditional discovery tools, for example, written discovery, subpoenas, et cetera, which has an arbiter, you know, has the judge overseeing whether the discovery is appropriate if the party subject to the discovery chooses to deny providing that information. But in this case, with the CID, that's not an option. So against this backdrop, Michael, what would you say are some of the common mistakes that targets make in defending FCA investigations? And is there anything a target can do with respect to the CID requests if they disagree or find them overbroad? You're right that the government's powers under the FCA are immense. And justifiably, targets are often overwhelmed when they receive a CID because they perceive that the government is in control and that they know the potential liability is often bet the company level liability. In my experience, the combination of this perceived helplessness and the very reasonable fear that targets are feeling, that results in targets missing critical opportunities to take back control of the breadth and pace of discovery. 
But the reality is the targets do have control. They have control over the documents and the witnesses, and targets should leverage that control to dictate the pace and scope of discovery. For instance, the government requests are almost always overbroad. That's not because the government wants a ton of documents. Quite the contrary, they don't. But it's because the government doesn't know what it's looking for, and part of the purpose of the CID is kind of to fish. But that means that complying with the subpoena or CID as it's written often would result in the production of hundreds of thousands of irrelevant or unhelpful documents. And smart targets, I think, would leverage this reality to limit the scope of the CID and also to dictate the pace of discovery. Thanks, Michael. Sounds like you're saying that part of what the defense attorneys can do is coordinate by making requests to narrow and limit some of the scope of the CID discovery. So, Michael, you mentioned that in some instances the government doesn't exactly know what it's looking for and that the government doesn't want a ton of documents. As a trial attorney, was that something that was daunting to you to think about in terms of the scope and pace of discovery? Yeah, and this goes back to what I was just saying. Candidly, there was nothing that scared me more as a government attorney than getting a document production of a million documents. A typical government investigation team consists of two attorneys. That would be the civil fraud trial attorney, if civil fraud was involved, and then the AOSA assigned to the case. And then in addition to the two attorneys, you'd also have one or two very overworked agents. You're lucky to get an hour a week from them. And there really is just no way that that three or four-person team can effectively review all of those documents. And there was a lot I was willing to do to avoid getting a document dump. I would have provided targets with a redacted complaint if I thought it would narrow the scope of the CID or narrow the production. And I would have accepted very narrow search terms. And quite frankly, just negotiating those things could take months that, again, give the defendant control over the process. Thanks, Michael. That's very helpful. Is there any other common mistake that you observed related to what we've been talking about from your time at the Department of Justice and seeing how targets negotiated with the department while they were the subject of an inquiry? There is. Thank you for asking. The second common mistake is linked to the first. Targets often take way too long to develop an affirmative narrative and present that narrative to the government, quite frankly. I was just talking about how I would have been willing to spend a few months negotiating the release of a redacted key cam and or the narrow search terms. Those two months couple with another 30 to 60 days before a rolling production gets started, that's three or four months when a target really should be identifying good and bad documents and interviewing key witnesses. Targets should be using that time to figure out what happened and how to present that narrative in the most favorable light to the government. Thanks, Michael. So let me drill down a bit more on your thought that targets should not wait too long before putting forward their own affirmative narrative. As defense counsel aiding our clients in responding to an FCA investigation, we regularly work closely with our clients to conduct an internal investigation to help identify the relevant facts and the witnesses related to the subject matter of the investigation, and ultimately to assess the strengths and weaknesses of a potential case. And we generally need to work expeditiously with clients in our internal investigations to essentially stay ahead of the curve on the government's investigation. So my question is, to what extent is your advice to put forward the affirmative narrative sooner rather than later affected by the factual strength of the prospective defendant's case? And at what point in the process do you recommend directly probing the Department of Justice for their view of the case? The timing of all that is very fact-specific. Generally speaking, however, if 
you have a good case, and by that I mean a positive story to tell on any one of the elements of an FCA claim or more, that would make me more inclined to push my affirmative narrative as soon and as often as possible. If my story is bad, if there's some there there, I might tend to wait longer to see if the government can actually put together its own case and then react to their presentation. Either way, though, from the moment I get the CID, I would constantly be developing the best narrative possible. And I would always be looking for ways to inject that positive narrative into every communication I have with the government. So from a practical perspective, we'll regularly we seek meetings with the Department of Justice, and that makes sense in terms of the facts and reading it. Certainly instances where we decide it's better to get our initial presentation very quickly, and this might depend on how many facts, the complexity, how many people are involved, or we might wait and try to probe the department for additional information to see where they're heading to better, really just to better target our defense and make sure that we're not talking past each other, but that it's a meeting that's likely going to be productive for both parties. So with that, I mean, these meetings and recognizing it may vary in timeline of the case, they're often attended by multiple stakeholders from the government. For example, might have, in addition to DOJ, attorneys, AOSA, it might have auditors, as well as agency or OIG counsel from the government agency that's involved in that particular case. Is this, these types of meetings with those stakeholders, is that your recommended setting for putting forward the affirmative narrative? And if so, do you have recommendations for how the information should be presented? And I guess lastly, and I just have, I think, a whole bunch of questions here that will be helpful for our audience to hear. If you are given a list of the stakeholders and someone's not there who you think ought to be, is there any harm in not asking for an additional person to attend such a meeting? You threw a lot at me there, and I'll try to answer all of them. I think, <laughs> again, it depends on how strong my case is. I would say that when you have that sort of global summit, that that is definitely the time when you pull out all the stops and you present the best case possible. I would do it with a detailed PowerPoint presentation. I would have the PowerPoint presentation feature documents, my witness testimony, and I would take on bad facts as well as good facts. But before that presentation ever even occurs, I would try to be injecting good facts, positive spin into every conversation I had with DOJ. And the problem with waiting until that big summit is that the government has already formed its own narrative, and it may take mountains to move them off that position at that time. So I would constantly be trying to nudge them off their position throughout the investigation and leading up to that meeting. And in terms of who attends, I think it's totally reasonable for a target to request that certain individuals be there. I mean, again, this is bet the company litigation oftentimes. The stakes are huge. And as a target, you want to be heard. And going back to my experience at DOJ, I think generally speaking, we try to accommodate those requests. There were times where we couldn't do it because certain stakeholders weren't available. But generally speaking, I think it's in everyone's best interest to have all the key players there. So I think it's totally reasonable for a target to request that certain individuals be present. And I would do it myself, I think, if I felt that certain people were being left out. Thanks, Michael. So it sounds like you're saying that from a big picture perspective, part of the key takeaway here is that it behooves an FCA target to maintain open lines of communication with the DOJ, not just necessarily in this key meeting setting, but throughout the course of the investigation and early on, if that's helpful for their case. And that the doing so can enhance the target's ability to essentially take some control and shape the course of the investigation. 
Would you agree that's a fair statement? Very much so. During the initial phases of an investigation, I think both parties are incentivized to find the truth. And that can mean working together and communicating throughout. Don't get me wrong, there needs to be zealous advocacy. And when your client's needs need to be articulated and presented, then that should be done. I'm not saying that friendship should come at the expense of zealous advocacy. But I do think that working together during the initial phase of the investigation is actually beneficial to both the government, quite frankly, but also to the target. And then having that good relationship means that when you do inject the positive spin that you've been developing or the affirmative story that you've been developing into conversations with the department, that they will listen to it and it won't be dismissed outright. That being said, if you get past the investigative stage and you are into litigation, take the kid gloves off and go to war. I mean, I think there's no more friendship then. Now you are truly at odds and it's time to go to war. Thanks, Michael. This has been incredibly helpful and appreciate you sharing the value and the benefit of your experience from the department to help folks who may find themselves or who currently are targets of FCA investigations or related complaints. Please tune in for our next episode, which will include a part two of other common mistakes that targets make in defending FCA investigations. We'll follow up with Michael on a few more points. And if listeners have any follow-up questions on these topics, please feel free to reach out to Mana at 213-443-5563, Michael at 202-508-8766, or me at 202-624-2573. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca.